Uh, I think in, uh, in terms of the number of verses we're going to read this morning, it's going to be the longest encounter that we look at, that we've looked at in this whole series. Um, so you'll have to switch this back there, guys. Um, uh, I hope we can at least get a sense of the life setting that was involved. I'm going to do what we usually do, look at some of the context, but then we're going to focus in as best as we can on what was really going on with these men. So if you turn to Luke 24, verses 13 through 35, Luke 24, 13 through 35, we're going to read this little bit of an extended passage together this morning. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were conversing with each other about all these things which had taken place. And it came about that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them said, one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and, cruci and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. And also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he would go farther. And they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. And he went in to stay with them. And it came about that when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they arose that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. So let's, uh, let's begin with some of our, uh, some of our usual introductory observations. I mean, let's just start with a thank you, Luke. Thank you, Luke. Right? Um, this story is alluded to in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 16, uh, verses 12 and 13. There's a mention 
that Jesus had appeared to two men as they were walking on the road. And that's all it says. If it were not for Luke, we would not have this whole story. And you've got to admit, this is one of the most... I mean, as far as, as, far as post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, and this is one of the most significant and detailed stories in the New Testament. And, and we have it because of, because of Luke. Luke's precise method, uh, methodical commitment to a detailed record. If you, if you read the first chapter of Luke, the first few verses, you'll see Luke saying, Theophilus, I wanted to, to, to write to you to assure you of the truth of the things we have received and to set down a detailed record in order from beginning to end of the things that Jesus did. And so this... This, this very careful, very precise uh, um, man under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writes this gospel and includes something at this point in the gospel that the other gospel writers don't include. So we have, we have, well, we have the Holy Spirit, but we have Luke to thank for it as the tool that God's Spirit used. The second thing to notice is that these two men in the story, only one of which is named, Cleopas, the other one is unnamed, we don't know his name at all. These two men held no place of prominence in the early church. We do not know who they were. We know nothing about them. They weren't among the twelve. They weren't prominent people in the church so far as we know later on. They may have been well known to the disciples and part of their circle of fellowship. But as far as anyone that, that made it into the record of history, they, they were just ordinary people. They were, they were men about whom nothing extraordinary in their life is recorded, except that Jesus appeared to them. And you think to yourself, out of all the disciples of Jesus, out of however many people there were, it's, let's say 120 in the upper room, why it is that Jesus decided to appear to these two, right? You've got Mary Magdalene, you've got the group of women, you've got Simon Peter, you've got these appearances, you've got uh, uh, Jesus appearing to the disciples as they were fishing, you've got a certain number of appearances, and then you've got these two that we just know nothing about. Ordinary men. I, I don't know how much to make of this, but I will say that, that at least this much can be, can be encouraging to us, and that is that maybe people who had nothing else in their lives that would have drawn attention to them were noticed enough by Jesus for Him to appear to them. I mean, that gives hope to me, right? That here, here I am ordinary man, and yet Jesus goes out of his way to appear to people that are ordinary people, that have nothing else recorded about them to commend them as some great men. I might be tempted to think, you know, I'll never be Peter. Jesus wouldn't appear to Peter. You know, Mary Magdalene had this unbelievable testimony, and he appears to her. But the rest of us are pretty ordinary people. Well, Jesus appeared to these ordinary people. He sees and he cares for us. The third thing to note is the setting. This, this miracle, this, the, this, um, this uh, appearance, happened on the road to Emmaus. 
Emmaus was a village some six and a half to seven miles uh, east-southeast of Jerusalem. Why they're headed there? Unknown to us. Maybe they lived there. Maybe they had relatives there. Whatever the purpose was, we don't know exactly why. But they are headed from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they're headed that direction fairly late in the day. It's an afternoon walk. How long does it take to get six and a half, seven miles? A couple hours? It's a fairly... It's not just a... Hey, let's go visit our next door neighbor. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of a walk, right? They're on this, they're on this distance of, of, a, of a trek on a Sunday afternoon. You have to remember that, that Jesus has already appeared to Mary Magdalene. But according to the story, they don't know about that yet. They don't know about that yet. What they know is this. They know is, what they know is that some women have gone to the tomb and claimed that they found no body. And secondly, they know that these women claimed to have had an angel appear to them that announced to them that Jesus had risen from the dead. Stop. That's what they know. There's this claim. We went to the tomb. We saw no body. Angels appeared, told us Jesus had, had risen from the dead. That's what they know. Now, you can imagine uh, that for these men, that that would probably raise at least as many questions as anything probably raise more questions than it would answer for them. It leaves them in a place of what is really going on? What is, what is it that's transpiring? What does all this mean? There's just got to be a thousand questions. And in fact, that's exactly what's hinted at by the fact that these men are having a lively discussion as they walk along the road. They're conversing back and forth trying to sort all this out. What does this all mean? What does this all mean? It's interesting to me that Jesus appears to people at different times and at fairly significant distances. I don't know what that means. I don't know if Jesus spent Sunday of his resurrection walking from Jerusalem where he appeared to Mary Magdalene to a shortcut on the road where he could meet up with these two men uh, as they were headed to Emmaus. Don't know exactly how that worked. Um, but what we do know is that, uh, is that uh, Jesus knew where his people were and who he was going to meet with, and he found a way to appear to these people that he wanted to make himself known to. So Mary Magdalene gets an appearance. And here, here uh, these two men on the road to Emmaus receive an appearance of the Lord Jesus. The fourth thing we know is that they're conversing and discussing. And this is, as I've already mentioned, this is important. Um, I think there's a word today that is actually a pretty useful word that helps illustrate what the text is telling us about these two men. When it says that they were conversing and discussing, in modern terms, we'd call this processing. 
they've got a certain amount of information and they're trying to figure out what in the world to do with it. What does this mean? What is the significance of all this? So there's two men walking together trying to make sense out of the last three days that they've experienced. They're trying to make sense out of what's going on. What does all this stuff mean? What's the significance? What is it these women are talking about? Is that possible? Is it, is it true? They've got to have just a million questions going on, and they're walking together. Uh, how many of you have someone in your life that you process things with? Do you? How many of you process out loud? How many of you process all by yourself, just quiet in the recesses of your own mind? That's where you process, okay? Some of you don't process at all because you didn't raise your hands to either one. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what that means for you. Uh, but listen, if, if, if you have someone in your life, I'm sorry? Somebody, I thought somebody made a comment back. <laughs> That's okay. So if you have someone in your life that you have the privilege of processing things with, that's a blessing, isn't it? It's a blessing. Someone that'll listen to you sort out. Um, for some of us, that's a pretty involved process. For some of us, we, we analyze a lot. And we try to find significance in details. And we try to figure out what they mean. And, and, and where they came from. Uh, and so, so if you happen to be one of those people and you have a processor in your life, you ought, to, you ought to thank God because it takes a fair amount of patience to sit and listen to those kinds of people. It takes some commitment to stay with them for the long haul of what it is that they're trying to sort through in their heads. Amen? So these two men are walking along and they're processing. They're trying to figure out what it is that is going along, uh, what, what is going on. Um, can I just throw this in there as a little, as a little added comment? Um, this is an important example of the value of the body of Christ. The two believers are walking together trying to figure out what all this means. And, and if I can stay here for just one more minute, I will say this, I, I don't think, well, I said this in Sunday school, so I'll repeat it this way again, I, I, I'm not very comfortable with people that have things so figured out that they never have a question, and that they never wrestle with God, that's a... I mean, to trust is great. I'm not saying we shouldn't trust. But I'm saying that the interaction between, between theology and what we read in Scripture and what we experience when we're living and walking in life brings up questions. And often they're not easy questions. In fact, sometimes they're downright difficult. And sometimes we border on feeling like the questions are almost slandering God. And we, 
Well, God, if I, am I allowed to ask that question? Am I allowed to have that question? Because it indicates a certain level of doubt or a certain, a certain struggle with what kind of God is it that whatever comes next after the sentence. And I, I, I just want to say this. Um, you probably can't have that level of conversation just with just anyone, but it's a blessing if you know someone with whom you can have it. Because I'm going to tell you this, God is not easily offended when we're going through times that raise difficult questions for us. He's not easily offended. I'd encourage you to go back and read the book of Job and listen to a man vent and you'll realize that at the end of the book, God does correct him. But then God says to his friends, you have not spoken about me that which is true like my servant Job has. And you say to yourself, you just spent about four chapters correcting Job. And now you're going to say you've not spoken about me that thing which is true like my servant Job did? What's going on there, God? And the reality is that God's looking at it and saying, Job's truth is found in the fact that he's talking out of the overflow of a heart that is suffering and that is asking honest questions. And he is, and he is going through a time of tremendous difficulty and the words that come out of his mouth are not to be analyzed for truth in the technicalities of the words that he uses. He's just blahing out all the stuff that he's trying to figure out in his life. And God's perfectly okay with that. And, and please hear this. I am personally of the opinion that one of the most unhealthy things you can do is try to stuff those things away. It's okay to face them and it's okay to let them out. It's okay to talk them through with God. He's got big shoulders. He can handle it. He remembers that we are frail. He knows how hard it, he, how hard it is for us. He knows how much it hurts. And, and as a consequence, he is just unbelievably patient when we spew. And he looks at us. I, I think if, if I can speak for God on this behalf, it would be something like this. Let me let my child get it out of their system. They're so frail. They're so weak. They got to get it out. They need to get it out. Right? And he hears it that way. And he walks with us through it. And it's okay. And it's okay. They're processing. One last thing here, verse 16, is a common post-resurrection appearance of Jesus feature. They didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize him. Now, it's a fun... It's a fun place to let your imagination run wild and say, what are the possibilities, right? Well, you know, Jesus died, as far as we know, somewhere around age 33. So, I mean, those of us that are on the other side of 33 look back at 33 and say, I, yeah, I, was, I was still in pretty good shape when I was 33, you know. I didn't go back there. I was pretty good. Those of you that are 33 might be thinking 25 was more ideal or something like that, right? I don't know what it all means. I don't know what age Jesus appeared to be when he was resurrected. I don't know what passing through death and entering into resurrection does exactly. 
I don't know what age you're going to be, what kind of state you're going to be in. I do know this. I know that there seems to have been enough in the gospel stories to make you think that there was something familiar about this, this apparition in front of, but something I can't quite say for certain. I know who it is. So there seems to be something going on there that, hey, um, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 15 that while we're not all going to die, we are all going to be changed. We are all going to be changed. With lots of questions, we, we look at this and we say, well, those who saw Jesus did not immediately recognize him, and it doesn't really matter how well they had known him in life. They just didn't recognize him. What that means is unclear, but it is pretty certain that his resurrection body had changed, and that's part of the hope that you and I have, that our glorified bodies will also be changed from what they are now. Uh, and man, when Paul says this mortal is going to put on immortality and this corruptible is going to put on incorru un uh, uh, incorruption, uh, my left shoulder right now says amen to that. Like, I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm kind of hoping that I don't have to wear glasses anymore. Right? That, that there's a day we're going to look forward to in which some kind of transformation is going to take place. Please hear this. I don't know how else to say this. Because by the grace of God, gifted to us through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary, you and I are going to pass through death and be transformed and be given a new body like unto His glorious body. And that's part of the hope we have. Amen? So maybe we sing it again, Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. Right? That that time comes. All right? So with those basic pieces in place, we have to consider three things that we're told about verse, uh, in verse 17, verse 21, and verse 22. We have to understand the emotional context of this story as we're reading it. We have to pay attention to the words that are used so that we understand as best as we can what it is these men are experiencing on the inside of them when Jesus appears to them, okay? We've already said, we know the facts. Some women said that his body wasn't there. Angels have said that, they, that, that Jesus has risen from the dead. But notice what we're told. In verse 17, the first thing we're told is that they are, these men are sad. They're still grieving Jesus' death. When Jesus appears to them and begins speaking to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? They stood still looking sad. There was still sadness in their heart. In other words, anything that they had heard was was not of sufficient certainty or clarity to them to have taken away their grief. They're still in the stage of grieving over the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're still dealing with the grief of, of, of the one they had put trust in having been crucified. They're still dealing with this kind of devastating experience in their lives. 
They're sad. They are sad. Now, the second thing to notice is this word hoped. In verse 21, they say, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Now, the point of it is this. What tense is we were hoping? What tense is that? What they're saying is, up until the time he was crucified, we had been hoping that he was going to be the one who would redeem Israel. In other words, they were hoping that he was the Messiah. And their definition of what the Messiah would be and do involved certain fulfillment of promises to the nation of Israel, deliverance from oppression, deliverance from, from, from foreign rule, uh, 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 a placing of them at the head of the nations. They had certain expectations that went along with that. And all those hopes, they had, they had, they had known Jesus in life, and all those hopes came to a full stop and came crashing down on them when Jesus dies. They had not seen that part of the story in the Old Testament. That wasn't clear to them at all. That wasn't supposed to be part of the bargain. That didn't fit their paradigm of understanding uh, uh, for what the Messiah was supposed to be. And as a result, that word hoping is really a word that demonstrates the fact that these people had suffered a terrible disillusionment and were struggling with disappointment. We had been hoping. Now he's dead. We had been hoping that he would be the one. We had been hoping that this was the time. And that's all gone now because he's dead. He's gone. So, so we have to see that this word is, is a word that indi indicates to us that, that what they had experienced in those days didn't fit with the with the expectations they had been building up. So it's, a, it's an illustration that's fresh because I have a wedding to do this week. Uh, how many of you found that one of the things that you deal with in marriage is that during your relationship up until the day you get married, there's all these illusions that you're under about how great this is going to be. And then you get married and realize that there's no way possible for that person to fulfill every expectation that you had. And we, we, we often find ourselves struggling through a time of discouragement, a certain sense of disillusion, a time of adjustment in which we're asking ourselves questions like, what was I thinking? And did I do the right thing? And... And there's too many laughs right now. <laughs> if your spouse is laughing, they're laughing at you. <laughs> they're saying something like, yeah, yeah I, I, I relate. I relate, right? That's part of the deal. That's part of the deal. However, death kind of feels final, doesn't it? This is not like, you know, we've gotten married, all my, all, all my hopes and dreams are not immediately being realized as far as I can see, 
but hopefully things will get better. Death kind of is supposed to be the end of it all, right? And so their words, we had been hoping, strongly imply a sense of, of disappointment and discouragement and disorientation. We had thought something was going to happen that was going to change everything, and it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. The third word that they used is the word amazed. If you look up the word amazed in Strong's Concordance, it literally means to put out of wits. To put out of wits. It means something like, that's not rational. That's not rationally understandable. Amazed. There's no human explanation for that. There's no way to make sense of that. Right? And so, so what you get is something like this. These women have said something to them that could be, probably should be, a spark of hope for them. But for people that have just walked through the crucifixion and seen it happen, it's, it's, one, it's one of those things, I don't know where this comes from. Does not compute, does not compute, does not compute. It's one of those kinds of things. It's like this. I had, so, I had my hopes so high, and then they plummeted so low in the depths of despair and disillusionment that I'm not sure if I can dare to allow myself to hope again. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. I don't know what to do with this. I don't know if I should allow myself to get my hopes up again. It's this, it's this I'm really wrestling with what to do with all of this right now. Do you get the picture? My brothers and sisters, there's nothing, there's nothing about what they've experienced in the last three days that's easy. This is intense stuff that they've gone through. It's intense stuff. It was a time of brutal pain and deep confusion and a very uncertain hope. And let me pause here right now and ask you if you've ever had a time like that. A time of deep pain, of deep confusion, and of uncertain hope. Now, I'm gonna ask you to bear with me. Um, I had no intention of this. I was unaware of this. Uh, I did not prepare this message because of either one of these. This was all done. Um, and I'm not intending to use these, these circumstances gratuitously. But it's an appropriate time, and I, I, by the way, I'm not saying that anybody involved is exactly in this place. That's between them and the Lord. But it's an appropriate time for me to ask for you to remember two prayer requests. Um, Brian Emmerich's brother passed away, um, sister, brother-in-law, his sister's brother passed away last night uh, from COVID. His brother-in-law's father had passed away from it a week, week ago, Monday on Monday. Uh, that's a lot for a family. Um, their last name is Kaufman, but it's, it's Brian's sister's husband. We need to be praying for that family right now. We need to be praying for them. Uh, for those of you that know Eric Mosman, his brother-in-law, Jana's 
brother uh, had an 18-year-old son coming home from work. As far as they know, he probably fell asleep at the wheel and was killed in a one-car accident. And they had an 18-year-old's funeral yesterday. Please hear this, because it goes back to what I said earlier. There are things you will experience in life that will under, I don't care how spiritual you are, there are things you will experience that are likely to raise questions for you that put you in a place where for a time you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle. I can't make sense out of the death of an 18-year-old. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to make sense out of the death of a, a father and son in a week. Why a family has to go through that. You know, in both, in both cases, you know, as believers, there's that hope in a future resurrection. But I'm going to just say this as honestly as I know how, okay? I think it's likely that on that day on the road to Emmaus, when, the, when these two men heard the report that some women saw an empty tomb and that there was an angel that said that Jesus had risen, I think there's two men that have gone through enough that are probably saying to themselves something like, I don't know if I can afford to hope in that. It seems too unreal. And I've got to tell you as brutally honestly as I can, there are some times when Oh, Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. Just seems like a really nice poetic song. And I find myself thinking, that sounds a little bit like science fiction to me. Lord, is that really going to happen? You know why? Because sometimes life hits you in a way that just, it just disorients and discombobulates you for a while. And everything just kind of spins off its normal axis for a while. And you're just left saying, God, I don't know where I stand right now. I just don't know where I stand right now. I want to hope. I'm not sure I dare to hope. I'm not sure if my hope is legitimate. All I know is the last three days have been rough, and I hurt, and I'm raw. And hope sounds a little to be too good to be true right now. For now, that's the best I can do to explain it. Unless you've walked it, I'm not sure that anyone can do it any better, but these are the kinds of things that we're going through these men's hearts according to these words that we find in the text. I want to share this with you in closing because I think there's in this text four things we need to see that are revealed to us in this text about what happens when you're in those kinds of circumstances. Four things we need to know about those times when everything spins wrong and you don't know what to do with any of it anymore. There's four things we need to see from this text. The first one is this. 
during those times, during those times, we need to know that it's not possible for us to see clearly. It's not possible for us to see clearly. Now, there might be some folks that want to take exception to this, but I, 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 think, I'm, I think I'm willing to defend this idea right now. We're not capable of seeing clearly. You've got two men that are walking with Jesus. They don't even know it's him. They've heard a report, but they don't know what to do with it. Everything in the story about what they're saying to Jesus indicates the fact that they don't even understand the Old Testament scriptures about this event. They don't know what to do with any of it. They don't understand it at all. There's nothing in the context of the story that says these men had any indication of, of a way to understand what they had experienced when Jesus died on that cross. They had had a hope. It had been dashed. And they're left not knowing how to view that. That's what they're left with. And I think if we're honest, we have to admit that the same is true of us. You know, one of those things that has been observed is that immediately after a tragedy is not a good time to make a life-changing decision. You know why? Because we're just not seeing clearly. You know, emotions are a way of thinking. Or at least this. Emotions are so powerful that they change the way we think. They change the way we think. We are not thinking the same way in those times of powerful emotion that we would be at other times. We're not seeing the world the same way. Times of intensity cloud our vision. Intense times cloud our vision. They make it impossible for us to see clearly the way things are. And by the way, this can be just as true of things that are intense in a good way as they are of things that are intense in a bad way. The example I would use of intensity in a good way clouding a man's vision would be what, he, what Elijah experienced on Mount Carmel. There's a miracle of God and fire falls from heaven and he kills all the prophets and man, it's such a powerful thing. But you know what? We humans are not made to handle that kind of intensity well. And the man is left so exhausted, even from the goodness of that experience, that when he's threatened by Jezebel, he's just like, okay, God, kill me. Take me out now, I'm done. You say, man, you just killed 450 prophets. You're afraid of this one woman? Yeah, because I'm spent. That's why. I'm spent. I got nothing left. My tank's empty. It's a fascinating story because God in his mercy puts that man to sleep and feeds him and puts him back to sleep. <laughs> right? It's an incredible thing. It's like God saying... This poor human being is just beat. He needs some rest. And he's got a long journey ahead of him to come meet with me someplace. Let's get him some, let's get him some sleep. You know what? When you've gone through that, something that intense, I don't care good or bad, give yourself a rest. Give yourself a rest. Give yourself a break. 
We human beings are limited. We're limited. And even good emotions, when they're intense enough, burn up our stock of emotional ability to handle life. They burn it up fast. It's one of the reasons why many people have post-holiday depression. It was so good for a while that now it all looks rather dull. And there's just a little time of blues that comes in afterwards. It's part of life. Let me make a bit of an application here. This is true of drainingly good, or it's true of devastatingly bad. The road to Emmaus is an example. This is not in the text. This is a freebie. I'm going to throw this one in before we move on, and, and I'll touch the last few points very quickly. But please hear this. This is an important application. In relationships with people, we need to remember that when things get super intense emotionally between people, nobody is seeing clearly anymore. Do you know how much it would help if two married people, instead of continuing the argument over who's right and who's wrong, when things have been that intense, would just take a step back and admit to each other, I'm not seeing clearly and neither are you. Boy, it looks so clear to me from my point of view. Yeah, well, it looks so clear to me from my point of view. And that's exactly what keeps the fight going. Because it's all so clear from my point of view. But it's just almost never that way. It's too intense, and we're burnt out, and nobody's seeing straight anymore. It would be so wise to face a time of intensity and learn you know, when things are intense between us, the best thing we could do is back down long enough and give each other some grace long enough to find some rest before we try to have this conversation again because neither one of us is equipped to handle it well right now. We need a break. We human beings don't see clearly when things get that intense. We're not seeing clearly. Somebody needs to remind us of that. Boy, that is so hard for me to accept. So hard for me to accept. The second thing we see in this text is this. No matter what it feels like, we're not alone. We're not alone. These men were walking with Jesus and didn't know it. <laughs> They're walking with Jesus and didn't know it. Listen to this. People may forsake us. 2 Timothy 4.16, Paul says, At my first trial, all men forsook me. But the Lord stood with me. Listen, everybody else may forsake you, but Jesus never will. Jesus never will. He never will. You might feel alone, and it's perfectly legitimate to feel alone. It's even perfectly legitimate to look up to heaven and say, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do I feel so alone? Listen, it has become so cliche that I think we have forgotten how true it actually is. You remember the poem Footprints? That has become so cliche that eh, footprints. But you know what? The reality is, most of the time, right, you get a chance to look back on life and you realize the times I thought he was not with me, 
he was actually carrying me. And that really is the reason why there's only one set of footprints back there, because I wasn't able to stand and walk on my own. He brought me through it. He brought me through it. Listen, he truly will never leave you, and he will truly never forsake you. You might have to lay in bed and rehearse that over to yourself and just say it over and over again. I don't see it, I don't feel it. But somewhere in all this, God, you're here. You're here. I have to trust that because you're here. You made a promise, you're here. The third thing we see in this is that these times grow us. I mean, this is exactly uh, what happens on this road. These men are walking and this whole time has led up to a moment when Jesus is able to appear to them and they're ripe to hear the, the Old Testament scriptures in a way they had never heard it before. And he's able to instruct them in the truth of the Old Testament. Bring God's word to bear on their hearts. Able to tell them things they had never been able to see before. He's able to teach them. He's able to teach them. These are times of deep instruction. You remember James chapter 1? Please hear this, because it's not just teaching, getting new information. He's transforming. He's forming a life. He's building two men into whatever it is he had for them in their future. Right? You remember James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, because the, the, tri the trying of your faith works patience. And that patience has its perfect work. You might be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. The point being, there's a spiritually maturing process that takes place when we go through trials. Trials does that in us if we walk with Jesus and allow it to. He will form us during those times. Now listen to this, because this is vital. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 tells us, sorry, I'm not clicking. Hebrews 5, verse 8 tells us that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. You see, this is part of what we see in the life of Jesus. You say, how is it that the eternal Son of God learns anything? Well, he emptied himself of divinity and he becomes a man. And in this earthly life, he finds out what it's like to obey as a man in the thing you don't want to, to have to do. He learns what it's like to obey when you don't want to. In case you haven't noticed, um, my preaching is probably some indication of uh, how things work in my life. Uh, a sermon, I'll go through a time of preparation, and when I'm done, there's a lot to say. I'm not the most talkative, exuberant person. I, I'm not a flibbity-ibbity-gibbet. But my wife will find that, my kids will find that, that when a serious conversation comes up, there'll be a lot that'll come out, a lot that is there to be said. You know, The cross is a powerful thing. To learn obedience, to learn obedience, 
to walk in those difficult places and to sort through what it is that God is teaching you, what God is saying to you, what God is building into you at those times. There's a, there's a certain richness there that fills a heart. There's a, there's a richness of growing and learning that takes place. You might not do it out loud and figure it out out loud, but this powerful truth of Jesus learning obedience by the things that he suffered, the Son of God going through that process of what is it like to obey when I don't want to. I said what I said about myself talking to say this. One of my challenges is, my wife has had to help me with this, is that I tend to teach too much. Now, many of you might be saying, no, duh. You can learn that at home, help out here, right? But you get the idea that, that for me, stopping my words can be difficult. You get me in a debate, you get me in an argument, and it is not my natural tendency to back down. It takes all the fruit of the Spirit that he can muster in my life, and then some to help me to overcome my natural tendencies in my flesh. To learn obedience in the area that is not easy for you, that you don't want to learn in, when everything within you is screaming, don't give up the fight, win it. Right? When everything within you is crying out, I don't want to go to the cross and die that death. My brothers and sisters, these difficult times are times when the Holy Spirit draws us to the cross of Christ, teaches us something about the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings, and it transforms us. Because they're almost always involved with this thing of, God, I would never have chosen this for myself. Somehow, I must accept your will for me in this. You're learning the cross. You're learning the cross. Last thing I'll say is this. When you've gotten through that process, you've got to find someone to tell about it. Or at least I'll say this. When the opportunity arises for you to tell somebody about it, make sure you do it. That's what you see in verses 33 through 35. They've walked late in the day. It's late enough in the day that when Jesus says he's going to keep walking, they say to him, no, it's too late in the day. Stay here with us. But when he breaks bread and they see who he is, they forget everything they said about it being too late to take a walk, and they head straight back to Jerusalem. Because, man, we got to tell somebody what just happened. i got to tell somebody, I saw Jesus. I saw Jesus. Now it's not so far, and it's definitely not too late. i got to go tell someone. Listen, this is 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 6 that we are supposed to comfort each other with the comfort that we have been given by God. If God's given it to you, pass it on. The day will come for you to pass it on. Don't go silent on that day. Pass it on, right? First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, uh, uh, sorry, I forgot the one. One, three through six. Comfort others with the comfort that you have received. Let me close with this one because I, I love this one. That one's huge, but let me just close with this one. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. 
tells us that those that were faithful to God spoke to one another often. It's such an interesting verse. It's one of those things in Scripture that, that is, is, is one of those curiosities. It says this, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The King James inserts the word often. They spoke often to one another. It says this, And the Lord gave attention and heard it. When they're speaking to each other, the Lord paid attention and heard what they said. And it says, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. Would you picture that? The possibility the next time you're sharing with somebody what the Lord has done in your life through a difficult time, that the Lord is present in that moment, listens to the conversation, and makes a note in heaven. Makes a note in heaven. This is one who feared me and esteemed my name. Oh, man. If that doesn't get you, spark your imagination. God pays attention when his people talk to each other about what he's done. Next time you've got a testimony to share, you better find one of the elders around here and let them know you got a testimony that needs to be shared because the rest of us need to hear it. I'm begging you, get over that self... What's the word? Uh, consciousness? Shyness? You're afraid to speak in front of people? You don't know what it's going to sound like? Man, I'm telling you, there's somebody that needs to hear the testimony that you have to share. And you might think it doesn't come out sounding like anything, but I'm telling you, it's going to touch somebody's heart. Somebody needs to hear it. Because when God takes you through deep waters, it does something that encourages everybody else. Amen? It's part of the deal. It's part of the deal. Tell somebody about it. You walk through your darkest days, he's writing a story in your life that's going to need to come out for someone later on. I'm going to close. Uh, okay, I, yeah, I'm going to close. Um, I'd like you to close with me this way. Can we just take a few moments um, to pray for those two requests that were already mentioned? I hope it's not uh, inappropriate for me to do this. Um, uh, but Amanda Jodon's mother died a couple weeks ago. How long ago? Four, four weeks, four weeks. Man, time flies fast. Um, we have him praying for you. Um, can we just pray for these that have gone through difficult times recently in their homes and their families? I'm sure you know others. Um, but these are, these are deep things for families to walk through. Uh, let's pray for them. Let's pray for them. Let's understand what these times are like what they produce, the way they scramble everything in the short term. But it's part of God producing a life message that, that results in a testimony on the other side. But they shouldn't have to walk it alone. Amen? Let's just take a, a few moments. Let's bow, uh, pick one of those prayer requests or, or some other one that's on your heart and just take a few moments to lift it before the Lord.
and we'll close in just two or three minutes of prayer.